Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And Arnie Sherman. You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Arnie Sherman, good Sunday morning to you. Well, good Sunday morning to you, Scott. I'm very excited. I've been kind of depressed in the midst of all this cold weather and never seeing green grass, you know, around Missoula. But you have a guest today that I'm really looking forward to a meeting because you know him and uh, sharing conversation with. So tell our listeners a little bit about Marty. Well, it's our guest is Marty Olenek, and Marty is an old colleague of mine from my days at RCA and BMG in the 90s and the 2000s, and he was the head of licensing out of the Los Angeles office and just has such amazing stories and a great story himself. And uh, I think he'll just be a wonderful guest for us. We're going di- to dig deep into the history of music. Well, if there's nobody better to do it with because he's been around for you know decades of the industry. He sure has. And he's writing a book about success. And he's got a number of folks that he's talking to that have given him quotes for that book. And he's just always working. He, at 78 years old, he does not stop. That's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to it. Me too, Arnie. Back after this with our guest, Marty Olenek. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Arnie, we are back with my old friend and former colleague, the head of licensing at BMG and RCA Records, Marty Olenek. How long have you known Marty? Over almost 30 years, if you if you talk about when we first started working together in the 90s. Wow, that's a, that's a lo- lifetime friendship. Marty, welcome to the show. Thanks a million. I really appreciate being here. So I want to know how you escaped New York. I know you went to law school at NYU and you got a, uh, a business degree from the Stern School and, and uh, you spent a lot of time there. How did your path migrate from New York out to L.A.? I started as a New York City attorney with the initial civilian complaint review board in the country, I believe, with Benjamin Ward. I spent about nine months with Ben Ward, and then I went to look for a job in the music industry. And I met a guy who was working for uh, a gentleman, two gentlemen who wrote the book, This Business of Music, uh, um, Krasilovsky and his partner. And the gentleman who I met, Peter Lane, said to me, I'll bet you're looking for a job. And I said, I'll bet you're right. About nine months later, 10 months later, he calls me and tells me there is a job at Roulette Records, working for the infamous Morris Leading. I interviewed, got the job, spent nine months there, got a trip to Cannes, to the music festival, saw Billy Joel perform live in their palais, uh, 
your song, which was my favorite song in, in, in that particular time period, came back, wound up, the same gentleman, Peter Lane, calls me and said, there's a job at, at uh, RCA Records in New York. I interviewed for the job, get the job, and uh, Dick uh, was just an amazing human being. And so I was working at Roulette, left Roulette, and then out of the blue, Peter Lane, same guy, gives me a call and says, there's a job at RCA. So I go to work at RCA, meet some amazing people in New York, spent uh, about six years from 71 to 77 there. And then one day my boss tapped me on the shoulder. He said to me, guess what? Ken Glancy is the president of RCA and I want you to go to Los Angeles because we're firing the head of business affairs and you're the new head. And I looked at him and said, over my dead body, I'm a New Yorker <laughs> and I'm not going. He said, oh, oh I think you're going. So they they actually and you were married at the time you had kids. I was I was I had just been married in, in 1973 to my wife, and the boss my boss said to me you have to go. So my wife was more adventurous than I was, and she said what do we have to lose? We'll just do it. So they wind up sending me out here seven weeks in the Century Plaza Hotel, like, <laughs> full everything laundry dinners, uh, everything imaginable for seven weeks on the company. I finally get, get sorted out and I, I'm business affairs at this point. And as I'm working for them and doing some amazing deals at the same time, I started out uh, doing Redbone with John Mason and John Frankenheimer who beat me to a pulp in the deal. I mean, they just, they were relentless. That was my first deal out here. And from there, I just kept doing deals and, and who you, were, you were doing deals with film studios, producers. Oh, commercial. I was just doing artist deals. Just artist deals. Artist deals, great. And then in 1986, uh, they moved the business affairs function back to New York because they, they got, they're actually putting it all together in one spot. So they, they say to me, look, you can handle licensing if you want to. And at that point, it was like, I don't know, $600,000 business. So I got myself really involved in doing licensing deals for film, television, commercial, television commercials. And I started to develop a routine of dealing with the studios, dealing with the music supervisors. And at that point, I started building the business from ultimately $600,000 to in the middle of that period, I came across, I started reading scripts. They asked me to start reading scripts to find soundtracks because soundtracks were really starting to come into their own and they were selling millions of copies. So I wound up reading a script for a film called Reality Bites. Now, at the time, the president of the company was, was Joe Galante, who'd come up from Nashville and his second in command was Randy Goodman and they were struggling. So I found the script and the, the funny story is, as I recall it, um, I asked Ron Fair, who was our A&R guy, to read the script and see what he thought. Cause I had read it and I thought it was terrific. It starred Ben Stiller. Yep. And so I sent Ron Fair home with homework. And I said, don't come back tomorrow unless you wrote the script. Came back the next day and he said, the script is amazing. So he went to the studio and met with Danny DeVito who was also involved with the project. I called Joe Galante and I said, Joe, I have something. Universal, which owned the film, also had the rights to the soundtrack. And for a minute, Universal stepped back and said, then I'm probably not going to do the soundtrack. I jumped in and said I wanted the soundtrack. And in those days, it was a $400,000 investment, which was substantial. 
Uh, and Joe said to me, are we going to make a profit? And I said, Joe, wrong question. The question is, we both love it. Ron and I, we should do this. He said, I'll call you back in 10 minutes. Called me back. We did the soundtrack. We sold about 3 million units. And that became our price. I, re I remember that very well, Marty. I remember it. It was, what, 91, right? Somewhere, around, somewhere around that time. But, but what's, what's remarkable, remarkable about that is that Ron Fair, who Marty's referencing, brought didn't she? He brought Christina Aguilera to the label. Well, what was very interesting, the, the artist actually came in through a friend of mine, to a father and son, Norman Kurtz and his departed son, unfortunately Steve. Steve brought, died. Steve passed away. Steve's gone. Are you kidding? I remember dealing with him. Yes, he died, and so it came to Bob. Uh, Bob Jameson called Ron and said, "Hey, I have this project." Um, would you be interested in working on it? And Ron said, yes. And that, that's how um, that's how I understand from my perspective that Ron Fair got involved with Christina uh, through Bob Jameson. But it's amazing how just a moment, Arnie, like I said, the, the, being in the right place at the right moment is career changing, is life changing. Sure. Well, the, the question I have to ask you is, you go to a prestigious law school like NYU. Right, New York, New York, New York law. Right, well, it's on New York law. Okay, you went to New York law. Um, why? What? What compelled you to want to go in the music business? I mean, well, that's a very niche place for somebody. I mean, you don't study the music business in law school. I couldn't play an instrument. I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be Vince Scully. None of those happened. <laughs> my mom, may she rest in peace. My mother was a music fanatic she was a dancer before she got married she used to go to dances she loved latin music latin music was her life and big bands and billy and billy Eckstein and all of it so my house every day was filled with latin music you're listening to louis prima and keely smith and dick ricardo sugar on the radio every <laughs> single day so my <laughs> head was filled with all of that and then in the 50s rock and roll comes around and i'm just in love with doo-wop and R&B music, and so my my I became a fanatic. I wrote. Uh, Scott will appreciate this as well. Before there was such a thing as a computer, there was a typewriter <laughs> with correct uh, tape. Right. What happened is I wrote 250 personalized letters to every company I could find any place to get a job in the record business. Nothing popped until Peter Lane came saw me at his office and said, I have a job for you. So I was into, and even till this day, I have almost 100% recall of every song I have ever heard. If you put a song on, I know the lyric. I can't play an instrument, which is my frustration of my life, okay? But I can remember every song and, and um, the lyric to it. And it just, That's amazing. That's yeah, fantastic. And, and my father was someone, may he also rest in peace, who didn't care about music to one degree. It didn't matter to him. He was a businessman and he never, never cared. What was interesting is at that time, the 50s and 60s, and you know, at that particular period, New York was such a melting pot of so many different musical styles. And you know, you got the you had the beach sound out, you know, in California in the 60s. But New York, you already mentioned, you had Jackie Wilson and you had Little Anthony and the Imperials, and you had the Times and all those groups, you had the Latin music. You had, you know, obviously the pop whole scene with Jay and the Americans and oh. all the stuff was all going on at the same oh, time. It was a fantastic time. 
to be, uh, you know, to be uh, introduced into the music business? Well, I, I just had this passion and I can't, I can't explain it. It's just my mom gave me that, that introduction into music. And um, I just, I just could not get it out of my soul. I left the job that was a pension job that would have gotten me. Ben Ward went on to be the commissioner of police in New York City. He said to me, Marty, why are you leaving? We need you. We want you to work here. And I had a job where Friday afternoons you go home early. Yeah. I, had, I had a police ID. It was unbelievable. And I left. So, so how do you feel? You remember every song you ever heard, but how do you feel if you turn on Sirius and you hear Cousin Brucey Morrow still performing and, and, you know, being a DJ 50, 60 years later? It's unbelievable. Well, actually. Um, I actually have contacted Cousin Brucey. <laughs> and kind enough to give me a quote for I'll, I'll mention later on the book I'm working on. But Cousin Brucey and Alan Freed's son, Lance Freed, are two people who I've maintained a, a relationship. And also, I must say, there's a gentleman on Sirius who is the best, cool Bobby B, who's also oh, on yeah. Sirius. And he has also been wonderfully acceptable of giving me a quote. And his story, which I won't go, his story is great because he started out people telling him he couldn't do X, Y, and Z. And he became a very, very successful businessman besides a DJ. So you spent a lot of your career involved in not only doing deals, but also you've done a lot in the uh, dispute resolution area of the entertainment Correct. industry. Correct. So, so let's fast forward for a minute. We're going to jump around in time. But what's interesting is a music platform has migrated into having talk shows. And they're paying right. Joe Rogan uh, reportedly a hundred million dollars right. to be controversial, you know, and, and Joe Rogan isn't a scientist or even a, you know, a well-educated guy. He's there to, you know, to create tumult, you know? And so how do you, I mean, I'm trying to understand as, as you know, if you're representing Spotify, you know, given what you've just said about being truthful, you've hired somebody that's, designed to, you know, to create controversy. Well, and what they've done, they stepped in yesterday and they made him issue a statement. Um, right. And so I'm hoping, and it's not only Joe Rogan, it's all the, all, every uh, major media outlet is a lot, is wants you to be a controversy. They want controversy for you so that you'll come back. And so I'm not sure that this is all uh, stuff that really is in the public interest, but there's nothing we could do about it. The internet, uh, all these cable stations, they all want you to be upset and come back for more. I think it's I, important. I was going to say, I think it's interesting that Neil Young could say he wants his songs removed from Spotify, but you know this well, Marty, not every artist has that luxury of being able to say to a distribution platform, you can't use my stuff, right? Because of the deals that they have with their labels and their publishers. Right. There was an article, a great article today in, in the L.A. Times, an opinion piece where the guy who was writing the article said, when you deal with podcasts, it's a situation where if you're going to use music, it's one time perpetual license. So you, you can't stop this stuff. I mean, on, on podcasts. Now, could you you can Neil Young can step up. But unless a major artist like Taylor Swift steps up, this is this issue is over. Nothing's going to happen. They're not going to take them off. They're not going to lose $100 million. Right. They're going to continue to do, as as all media does, and as every company does, 
they do what's in their own best interest to keep profits rolling. And I, you know, if I was in that position, would I do the same thing? Probably, but I would want some sort of disclaimer saying what's false. I mean, I think if you if you deal in falsity, you're misleading the public. And again, that's something that I find uh, problematical. Um, Marty, question for you though: You were also around, as was I, in the record industry when, and this is different, when the PMRC asked labels to put a warning sticker, right? Or to pull certain artists because of controversial subject matter. Correct. The difference is, was that it was, was, that subject matter was art. It was to be interpreted how people wanted to interpret it. Correct? Correct. Correct. Versus. It's the same thing that's happening now with, with mouse and trying to ban books and libraries again. Correct. Sorry. Look, it, it's uh, when the, when the PRMC did what they did, they were concerned about, I, I think, more about language and about uh, certain aspects of recordings. And they lost eventually. They lost. I mean, the people who wanted these labels, some of them put advisory labels on. They didn't stop it from coming out. It was it was fair, fair speech, free speech. They, they could do what they wanted to. And they did put advisory labels on some of the records because there was an objection by, if I remember correctly, it was the vice president's, vice president's wife who really had a strong reaction to Warner Brothers um, material. And they did, I think they mostly put an advisory label on it. Here you can't put an advisory label on it. You know, you can. They're doing it now. They're putting it on the front of the, on front of the uh, broadcast on the podcast. But if people want to listen to it, I don't think there's any way you're going to prevent it except to say, this material is this is not factual material. This is somebody's opinion, and we believe it's wrong. Right. What else can you do? Yeah, it's 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 very it's very complicated. Let's get back to your career. You've been doing this for a long time. What what's different now than when you first showed up in in Los Angeles and and started getting involved in these deals? How is it? How has the industry evolved and changed? And what are you doing now compared to what you were doing then? Okay, so. Amazon basically not only changed the book industry, but it also, as we all know, uh, changed the record industry. So today, there's almost no distribution of physical goods. You could walk into a record store in, in the 90s, even close to 2000, and you could find all these records that you, and you would buy records based on what you would find. You, you wouldn't go into buy, specifically buy a particular record, maybe, but you'd find four or five other records that you thought were interesting and you'd buy them. Today, there is no such animal. Today, the only physical goods that I can see that are being manufactured are LPs, which is a, an unbelievable <laughs> throwback because LPs have been dead for years. So there is no, if you want to buy something, you wind, you're winding up on one of these um, uh, Amazon-like outlets. So you, you don't see, you're not seeing what's going on as far as being physically able to do it. So you're listening to, stuff on on uh, on some of the you know uh, ra- radio outlets through Sirius or you're looking at stuff on Amazon but you're not feeling anything you're getting your information from a totally different source is it wrong or right I don't know when they stopped making LPs and CDs and all the rest the artists were in a turmoil because they had to go back to touring and and touring when I started was the life bread of the industry because they didn't have they didn't rely on physical distribution of products, even though there was physical. They relied on concerts. Today, they're back to concerts. 
because they make a lot of money from concerts and streaming is the lifeblood of the record industry right now because the money that comes in from streaming is actually starting to increase to a level that it's higher than it was when we had physical distribution of products. So it's, but, but it's, the, totally, it's a different world. But the world you come from of the licensing of the music and finding other outlets for the music, other media outlets, film, TV, video games, that continues to be a surging kind of category of exploitation and, and has been. And you're really, you really was, were one of the, the, the forebearers, the, you know, the forefathers of that. That's of that. correct. Uh, what's happening today, I've spoken to my friends in the industry. What's really happened today is licensing. I still remember the days when I hit $12 million in sales in 2002. I had a record year. That went to the bottom line of our company. That was that was more profit, I think, than they've seen in years. Today, it has become even bigger and bigger. There are so many outlets that need music. The uh, commercials use music extensively. You find music in every single cable show. Almost you find it in every almost in every single um, film. So uh, licensing is a huge, huge part. And how do you determine the rate of what you would charge a uh, you know, a music supervisor who's doing the music for Euphoria on HBO, or if it's a new artist versus an established artist. Well, the way the way we did it, and the way I think it's done today, is, is if you need to get an artist exposed, you would make a deal that would be less than the current going rate. Uh, it, the rates vary all over the place. I mean, if you're placing um, a major artist like Taylor Swift, I mean, there's no there's no uh, top to what you can ask for. I mean, you, you you basically have two components. Let me explain this. There's two components to a license. You need the record company, which owns the physical performance embodied in it. So it's Taylor Swift singing. But you also need the person who wrote the song. That might be Taylor Swift. That may not be. So a lot of times, people get involved in favored nations. So whoever comes first, let's assume they go to the publisher first, and the publisher says, for this use in a film, I want $150,000. Well, the record company is going to come back and say, and they're going to probably say, we want a favored nations with the record company, which means that you cannot pay the record company more than you paid us. And if you do, you're going to wind up paying us the same amount. So there is a quid pro quo there where the two sides will probably at least match each other. So if you're low on one end, let's say the record company quoted 100 and the publishing company quoted 150,000, then what's going to happen is invariably the publishing company higher number is going to come back and the record company is going to get that number. It's what the market will bear. It depends on the notoriety of the artist and also uh, what the skill is of the person negotiating and what the publishing and record companies come up with in their own calculation. And how does the how does the performer stand in all of this? The well, person who's recorded all of this. This is very interesting. Generally, the publishing piece that the writer gets is divided up between the publisher, who is could be the artist as well. It gets complicated, but the publisher could be a third party publisher who signed the signed the composer, okay, or it could be the artist. But with the way it's divided, it's fifty fifty on the publishing side. So. If a dollar comes in, 50% would go to the publisher, 50% would go to the writer, but that could be changed because if the writer is a significant writer, 
what happens is they either get more of that split or they do what they call an administration deal. They say to the publisher, hey, I'm not giving you 50%. I'm giving you what we call an administration fee, which is 10 or 15% of a dollar. And rather than you getting 50, 50 cents, you get less than that. Now, on the record side, what's happened is in the past, uh, a lot of times the artist would wind up having the split. And usually, usually it's been 50-50. So it, it, whatever comes in, uh, on that, let's say it's a hundred thousand and fifty comes in and fifty comes fifty goes to the record label, fifty to the artist. And what the record companies in the past had done up until the nineties was they would take that fifty thousand and use it to recoup the account, which included advances and recording costs. But the artist got smart at one point and said, No, no, this has to be separate. So my fifty thousand comes into my pocket as soon as you get it. So it's it's changed, but it's still sort of a split. And when you come to when you when you get to um, the services like um, what comes out of uh, uh, the streaming services, that all comes in uh, to the, the publisher's portion goes to the publishing company. The record company's portion goes in to the record company, but it's split out by the record company to the artist and to the um, any other entities that uh, might and need it. And you used to do that for what artists? I mean, you did that for so many of our artists, right? I did it for Holy Notes, Jefferson Airplane, Christina Aguilera, um, God, Bruce Hornsby, um, Elvis. Well, Elvis was my bread and butter, and that was my relationship of all time. I uh, dealt with uh, the estate of Elvis Presley. I think Scott, you may have been there for the hundred million records in Nash Nashville when they um in Memphis when they had a a party for Elvis after he passed, obviously a hundred million records. There was a uh, a party in Memphis that we a lot of us attended at the got, pyramid. Where did they do? I know that this one was at the um at the estate. Oh, um, at the estate, okay. Chapel, I believe. And so my a lot of my um um money that came in was through Elvis Presley. We had a deal, which was a very strange deal. Uh, a guy named Mel Overman bought out Elvis's royalties um, from 70, I believe it was 72 backwards, which was all the 50s hits. So RCA had a controlling interest in all of that stuff. Eventually, Elvis got back into getting some of the money, Elvis's estate, but RCA owned all that, owned everything from 72 backwards, all those master recordings. Um, and so um, I would license that stuff. Also had a relationship with the estate, which had a um, an interest in all the publishing that any song that Elvis recorded, uh, they were put on as publishers, as the writers of those songs. Amazing. And and Marty, it's interesting to note that like when you dealt with the estate, did you oftentimes had to deal with the artists and the manager? When you had a licensing deal, you had something you wanted to work with them on, right? Yes. Why, why was that? Like, why would why didn't you just have the ability to carte blanche do what you wanted to do to exploit the the rights? Certain artists, like for instance, Lou Reed, had a statement in his contract that any use of the master recordings other than on records had to get approval from Lou. So we would go back to Lou Reed. But as a courtesy, we also went back to a lot of other artists. For instance, we had Perry Como, who is a major artist 
at the time. We would go back to Perry Como and get his approval because we didn't want to be in a situation where we placed music in an inappropriate venue that was something that the artist did not want. For instance, I, I'll give you a couple. I was asked to go to a screening um, for a movie um, that contained an extremely bloody scene um, of a, a, a man having his ear cut off. And they were using a Harry Nielsen recording. And I sort of was wishy-washy about this. It was sort of very upsetting scene. Reservoir I, dogs. Exactly. So I picked, <laughs> up, I picked up the phone. I picked up the phone. Exactly. Reservoir dogs. I picked up the phone. I called Harry. And I said, look, Harry, I don't know whether you want to be a part of this thing. He said, Marty, look, can you arrange for me to, to do a screening? I said, absolutely. Because they really wanted the song. And so I, Harry went, he saw, he saw it, and said to me, Marty, just go do it. I really want to do it. And, of course, it wound up being a historic situation. And there was another <laughs> one where... Uh, Rat- that was uh, Steeler's Wheel, stuck in the middle with, again... No, no, it was uh, without, wasn't it with, without you? By oh, oh, yeah, that one, that one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, was so then, then there was a rapper when rap first started. Uh, and I got a call to use the Henry Mancini track or piece of a track as a sample in a song that had a lot of a lot of stuff in there that was not Henry Mancini or <laughs> I picked up the phone, I called his office and I said to his assistant who I knew, I said, Look, I'm not sure Henry would want me to do this, and I will not do it unless Henry feels it's appropriate. So Henry calls me from South Africa. I explained the situation to him. He said to me, Marty. I want to be contemporary. I don't ever want to be in a situation where I'm not contemporary. He said, put the song in. Now, you got to remember, this is a guy who did um, uh, Peter Gunn and all sorts of other right. brilliant movies, did the scores for everything, Days of Wine and Roses. I mean, when you, sure. there was a man who was so forward-looking, he felt that it was extremely important for him to be contemporary. Har- Harry Nielsen was the same way. Harry was a friend of mine. And he he was the same way. He would go for almost anything as long as long as it made sense. Did they acknowledge this? Did they like thank you after like fi- putting them in a great venue like that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was friendly with Henry, so he he was very happy about it. Yeah, they they were they were good. The only person I I, I argued with a number of times was Lou Reed, who could be both friendly, <laughs> both friendly and caustic. But I would always tell him, Lou, I'm the messenger. Please do not do not attack me. I'm just asking you a question, and he. 90% of the time he was pretty But he had a thank you for helping license Walk on the Wild Side to the, a tribe called Quest for Can yeah. I Kick It? I mean, that's yeah. historic. Yeah, he, he was really, um, he was a good soul. He just got himself excited at times. But he, I had a relationship with, I would say, 99.9% of the artists that I dealt with were terrifically um, helpful. The Hall and Oates, for instance. I knew Tommy Mottola in the day when he was before he became the head of, of Columbia Records, he was the manager of Fallen Oats. And if I really wanted to do something, I mean, the, most of the time I got a yes. That's when we got to the numbers we got at um, regarding licensing. And uh, that people just, they, they enjoyed it. I, I remember uh, Chris Montan, who was the head of Disney, who did all these famous uh, Disney soundtracks. He came to me one day and he said, Marty, I need someone to sing this song from Mulan. So I, I listened to the song and I said, you know, I got the right person for you. It's a girl named Robin. We had a, a Swedish single. We had a success with her. And so I sent the song to Robin. She comes back and says to me, I'm not interested. I don't want to do it. Okay. 
I went to Christina Aguilera and Ron Fair, and the rest is history. That was her first main uh, song sure. that was a huge hit. Okay, yeah. so yeah, and then people would call me like when, when 90210 was going on. I had a friend, Ken Miller, who worked there. He called me, he needed a, a song for a spot. I had a group called Lit, which was a, a you know, group out of um, Nevada, and they were sort of a, a rock group, and so. I, I had a song of this, and I I said to Ken, this is a song you should use. He said to me, is this going to be a hit? I said, Ken, take it from me. I think it's going to be a hit. He put it in an episode of 90210. The song blew up. We sold a million albums. And then um, the guys wound up in the video of the artist, uh, of, yes. of the, um, uh, of the uh, star of the show. So... Um, yeah, this thing, they wound up uh, being very helpful to one another. We developed relationships with people that came to trust us for music. And, and you know, we also were very flexible. If someone wound up, we made a deal, and then they used a little bit too much of the song, or they used instead of 20 seconds, they used 40 seconds, and they needed that particular track at that price. We were extremely flexible. We said, go do it, and the person would say half the time, We'll make it up to you in the in the future, and they did. They were really cool about it. So, Marty, you got a million stories. You know a million people. I'm sure you've been told a million times. You need to write a book about all this, and you are. So, tell well, us about the book. I am in a way. Um, what I did was, and I'm doing special education mediation now um, because I, I have an advanced degree in alternative dispute resolution. So, I decided about eight months ago to to go to people and ask them three questions. Uh, successful people. What what in your in your upbringing and youth led you to success? What does success mean to you? And then the third question is a philosophical question. How does success fit into the meaning and purpose of your life? Well, I figured this was going to be a short-term project. I, my first letter went to Bob Costas, and, and out of sheer joy, he winds up giving me a quote. From there, I went to the most prized executive in the music industry, Clyde Davis, who gave me an absolutely spectacular quote. I went on to a childhood idol, um, Johnny Mathis. From there, I went on to Jerry Greenberg, who headed Atlantic Records, to Alan Arkin, to uh, Billy Crystal. These are two people who owed me from days that I did licensing deals for them. Again, a third person who owed me from the old days, and I never thought would ever do it, Lucy Arnaz, of all people. Hmm. And it, it just snowballed from there through baseball people, through um, the head of the Baseball Hall of Fame, Josh Walwich, uh, to um, uh, people who were, I think, um, people we idolized, callers going to pitch for the Brooklyn Dodgers, Jerry Royce who pitched the no-hitter for the LA Dodgers, Fred Clare, the head of, uh, was general manager of the, of the LA Dodgers. And, um, I'm working on getting Peter O'Malley, who owned the Dodgers, and there are a myriad number of people who are now Bruce Hornsby, who recorded success very successfully for RCA. Um, uh, all sorts of people are people involved. from your career, yeah, including politicians, including people who who are Erwin Shemarinsky, who's the dean of Berkeley School of Law, Lawrence Tribe, who's on MSNBC and CNN. Um, uh, Chuck Hagel, who used to be the defense secretary. I mean, people of that ilk are all contributing to this book. Do you ever look back and say, boy, I wish I didn't move out to L.A. to do what I did? Because 
um, I always have the thoughts of what could have, should have, would have. Uh, but when I when I look at everything that's involved, I have a very successful son now who is in the music business, and I think a lot of it has to do with his father. Of course. And and my other son is also very successful due to Strauss Elnick. I I blame Strauss for a lot of it. Very successful. So, um, yeah, I look at it. I was a a Brooklyn, Queens, New York guy who loved living in New York. And so living in California, I've been here a long time. Will I ever get used to not being in New York? It's never taken the New York out of me. Let me put it that way. Well, that's the truth. Arnie's going to ask you a question. What's the best Jewish deli in Los Angeles? <laughs> There's no uh, question which one it is. There I, is none. Uh, <laughs> arts, but it's not really a true Jewish deli. No, it's not. But Langer's has good pastrami. Uh, yes, but that would you, I wouldn't consider that a Jewish deli. There are a bunch of them. Brent's the best deli in the Valley. Yeah. But, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's look, when I came out here, there was no such thing in the day as Dan and Yogurt. There was no Hellman's Mayonnaise. There's another name. We look, in, we look in the supermarket for various brands we were so used to. Couldn't find them now. Of course, there are a lot more. But sure, uh, I, I really enjoyed my initial period here. Now it's become more of a metropolis, and it's changed a lot. But I still, you know, look, I do like it. What can I say? He's been there for almost 50 years. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I do, but I do have my connection to New York with my my son. Uh, and, well, and not only your son, but it's where your your, your early formative years were were uh, fermented in the city of New York. It's hard to it's, you know, it's hard to forget that. Plus, you were lucky that your team from New York migrated to uh, L.A. And so well, I was a Met fan. Them. I got to tell you, I became a Met fan, and when I used to go to the Dodger games out here, I was I used to not pay attention because I really was upset with them. And then something sparked, and I started collecting uh, baseball cards. I started getting them signed through the mail, and I put a collage together of the Brooklyn Dodgers that is unbelievably great. And so I still have in my heart the Brooklyn Dodgers, even though I love the L.A. Dodgers, and I love I, I'm I'm all for all New York sports, Yankees, Mets. I do <laughs> I do like it a lot. I have a lot of friends who who are big fans. Well, it's it's hard. I mean, you know, we talk, we've talked about this before. The teams that were the teams in your childhood are hard to eject, no matter where you move and where you live. You know, it's still it's still when you know it's connected emotionally. You know, to your you know to your central nervous system almost. So there's one other story I like to tell you about the music. Sure, that I think is great. Uh, I don't know what you guys know. A guy uh, named um, well, you know the Charles Manson story, correct? Yes. Okay. Vincent Boliosi was the prosecutor of that case. Right. I had read all of Vincent Boliosi's books. I get a call one day. I have a clear blue sky. And I'm, I'm, my, my assistant comes in and says to me, Vincent Boliosi's on the phone. And I said, it's got to be one of my friends you know, pulling a joke on me, whatever. So I get on the phone and I said, are you the Vincent Boliosi who wrote all the books? He says, yes, but that's not important, Marty. He said, I've got a bone to pick with you. And I said, wait a second. You've won 150 cases and never lost the prosecution. You have a bone to pick with me at RCA? He <laughs> said, yes. The people in New York told me you're holding up two tracks that I need for my Bolero album, which I'm releasing on EMI records. It's a Bolero album of the, cen- of the century Bolero you know, songs. I said, Vincent, I don't know what you're talking about. He said to me, I'll tell you what, Marty. 
if you can get me those two songs, and I believe they were by John Gary and John Davidson, you and I will become friends for life. And sure enough, I got him the two songs. He put the album out on EMI. Of course, it sold no records. But Vincent and I, up until the time of his passing, became great friends and spent hours on the phone. And I was so proud of the fact that the guy who was one of the most famous prosecutors in this world was a friend of mine, and he was a real human being. He was terrific, absolutely wonderful. And it was Latin music that brought us together. My mom, my <laughs> mom would have gone crazy if she knew that this. Yeah, but <laughs> known that 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 happened. And when I worked at Roulette, we had two labels: Chico and Alegre. We had um, Tito Puente, Joe Cuba, Rodriguez. When my mother found out about that, these were her idols in life. And so it was an unbelievable when I mentioned those names to her and she heard me say it, she couldn't believe it. Marty, you Marty, you mentioned your two sons. Where are they both working? Well, my oldest son works for a private equity firm that's headquartered in, in London, and he, he heads the North American operation. And my younger one is in the music business, lives out here in Los Angeles about 10 minutes from us. So uh, we are looking, yeah. I was to say, behind every great man and children is a wonderful wife who we met before the, the Zoom started. And a she's been your wife since 1973. That's correct. Brilliant woman who started out when I was in New York. I met this absolutely vivacious, gorgeous woman. And what happened was um, she was, at the time, a computer programmer for home insurance. Now, this was in 1972, I met her. And, and this is a woman who had a math background and was working at, on IBM 360s, which took up an entire floor and had mm -hmm. a, a certain temperature. I met this woman who was doing this, and at night was going to school at Adelphi University to get an MBA. And then we came out here, and she became a CPA. So I had, so you can determine where my, my children's brains come from. <laughs> it's from a wonderful mother who, who knew, who knows finance, and, and accounting, and I think that's where they both picked it up. So I have yeah. to ask you this. Are you going to answer the three questions in your book? Um, yeah, probably. I probably That's a very good question. People have asked me, what am I going to do when I get this thing put together? Am I going to respond? And I, I probably will. You know, I, I've got to say that um, my mother really got me on a path towards a lifelong love of something that I just can't get out of my blood. When I hear a great song, it just, I'm, I'm, I'm a person who loves duet and love songs and um, a lot of different, a lot of different things, but um, she's the lifeblood of, of my existence at this point. I'm so happy I have it. So it's, it's part of your blood. So do you have a favorite artist? Do you have a favorite Johnny song? Math, Johnny Mathis. Johnny Mathis. Everything that Johnny Mathis ever did is something that I will never forget. I met him twice. And sure. one time I told him, Johnny, do you remember, I think it was 1962, 63, do you remember Forest Hills? And he said to me, Marty, you're going to tell me that I fell into the orchestra pit. And I said, Johnny, I was at that concert. You missed, <laughs> you missed the, the front of the stage and you wound up in the, in the orchestra pit. And then I just saw him before the pandemic in Pasadena on a Thursday night, the Pasadena Civic, an entire auditorium sold out. Man is 84 years old and sang 40 songs and was absolutely beyond imagination. 
You might have- you might not remember this, Scott, but I think it was 1959 or 1960 when his first album came out, and his first album was called Johnny Mathis' Greatest Hits. <laughs> <laughs> and the other interesting thing about Johnny Mathis is he was college roommates at the University of San Francisco with Bill Russell. I did not know that. And he was an NCAA high-jumping champion. Yes, that I did know. And you know, he was supposed to go, I think it was to the Olympics or recording or record, and he chose to record. Right, he was supposed to go to the 60 Olympics, I believe. Yes, he is amazing. He had a longer career. He had a longer career. Let's take a quick break. Our guest is Marty Olnick, uh, founding father of music licensing, old colleague of mine from RC and BMG days. We'll be right back after this with final words with Marty. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, Arnie, we are back with our guest, Marty Olenek. So, Marty, if people want to uh, get in line for your book, when do you think it's going to be ready to be published and when is it going to be out there or how do they get a hold of you if they have some questions or comments or if they're, you know, friends of artists listening who want their 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 artist friends to be quoted in the book. How does that all congeal? What do they need to do? Okay, my best uh, contact is, you'll love it, queensboy1961 at gmail.com. queensboy1961 at gmail.com. I have room for any artist or any, it could be any industry where there is a successful person of some notoriety because this book is going to be for the youth of the next generation as far as success is involved and i am donating a portion of the net proceeds of this book because i'm a a special ed mediator to autism speaks so if you want to join anybody wants to join you will be in a company of amazing people who have done great things including toby emmerich the president of warner brothers pictures um uh, a guy named um I'm trying to remember his his, last, his first name, but it's Levine. He is the CEO of Showtime. He is in this book. So if you want to really get involved in something that's I hope will be spectacular, um, just get in touch with me, Queensboy1961 at gmail.com. Sounds like a fantastic project and a fantastic book and a fantastic way to uh, you know reach the pinnacle of your career. Well, I, ho- I hope so. I'm really, I have great uh, feelings for this for this project and I'm hoping it'll come through. It is not a money-making. I'm not interested in money-making except to the extent to donate a portion of the proceeds to Autism Speaks or a charity such as that. It's, it's really a labor of love. And it's something that came to me while I was uh, had some downtime and I just thought it'd be spectacular. It's been great, Marty. It's been so great to catch up with you. To seeing, having not seen you for almost twenty years, and seeing you, it's like picking up from where we left off. I just have such good fond memories of working with you and being in your presence. So, 
What a treat. Same, same, same back to you. And Arnie is a true New Yorker. And <laughs> I just, I just, uh, I love talking to him. And when we get off, I'm going to show you what we discussed. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. I'll see you next week, Arnie. Thanks again, Marty. Take care, Marty. All right. Thank you for listening to What Do You Know? I can't wait for the next show, Scott. I'm excited too, Arnie. If you'd like to suggest a guest, send me an email at scottrichman at townsquaremedia.com. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening to News Talk KGVO.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.